Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. In our first episode, we talked with James Dolezal, and we introduced the doctrine of divine simplicity. We did this by giving a definition of divine simplicity, by considering the historical development of this doctrine, by considering its philosophical rationale, and by considering the biblical explanation for this doctrine. In today's episode, we talk about the importance of believing this important doctrine, and we pray that this conversation will be edifying to you. Now let's pick up where we left off last week. So, Amen. That, oh, anyway, I that's would, my short answer. I would agree. The theology. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, which, which, I'll just make an aside. You can do that. You can do. You can arrive at this conclusion. Historically, theologians will arrive there via natural theology or by contemplation on the the, te- the inspired text of Scripture itself. In other words, this is this can be this can kind of become can be had uh, from from either standpoint. At least historically, that's how it's been approached. All right, Jimmy. Sorry, I cut you off there. Oh no, no, that's that's fine. Um, in light of some of the things that we've been talking about, the historical development, philosophical rationale, biblical support, we know that at some point people began to deny this notion of divine simplicity. And so the next question is, what are the most common reasons that people tend to give for their denial? And how would you respond to them? Yeah, it's. I mean, the the philosophical theologians have a kind of different, uh, more boutique way of coming at their criticisms. Uh, I think the I think the 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 broader objection, kind of in the popular imagination, uh, probably come. And I'll, I'll address both in brief if I can. Um, the more popular objection, I think, comes from the note. I, I think the simplest one to deal with is. You're saying you're you're insulting God by calling him simple. And what we're what we're trying to get at is we're not denying we're not denying the the uh, boundless depths of his being and calling him simplistic. So I'll just leave that as my that I'll brush that one aside. I think the more popular objection is that this seems to this seems to, in a certain sense, deprive God of his greatness and of his power in so much as the more multi-parted an entity is, the more it has to work with in sort of producing effects. And so if I could put it like this, um, my, my, body is an inst- my body is distinct from my soul and my body is an instrument of my soul and of my will. So that if I, like, if I will to um, pick up a pen with my hand, um, if I had fewer parts, like if I had only a soul but not a hand, um, and I weren't omnipotent, then I would lack the instrument by which to execute my will, and I couldn't be as effective in producing an outcome as I can with more. Now, throw a body in the mix, like give me a give me a right arm or a left arm, and then I can produce results like lifting lifting five gallon buckets and lifting ballpoint pens and things like this and so the idea is if you throw more parts into it i'm more power i'm more able to produce outcomes and we think of this particularly in terms of um mechanics uh if you i don't know if you remember in in high school in 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 physics or in mechanics uh studying the whole notion of a lever um but when you add a lever uh into the equation when you're trying to lift a heavy object 
um, using a lever, uh, you know, adding a adding a part into the equation, so to speak, actually um, increases your ability to lift a certain amount of weight. And if you add in more pulleys uh, and more levers and distribute the work across a series of parts in a machine, so to speak, you can actually get a lot more. Uh, you can you can produce a lot greater outcome as a result. And so, the temptation is for us to think about powerful production in terms of multi-parted machines. Um, I've used the illustration in, in several venues of um, a vehicle of transportation. And so if I want to if I want to take a trip from California to Philadelphia, um, I, I have several ways to do that. Um, my favorite is to do it by air travel. Uh, when we made a move uh, this past summer, we we did it by car uh, and you know everybody got in the minivan and we just drove it coast to coast. And um, and that had certain advantages uh, in terms of um, landscape and topography and times to listen to, uh, you know, books on tape. I know people don't do that anymore, but, you know, whatever you do, you know, it was great. But um, it wasn't quite, you know, five hours air condition, you know, gate to gate with ginger ale and coffee served to you. <laughs> you know, in other words, air travel. Well, there's something about this. It was a, in, a, in a Boeing 747, which is composed of about six million parts. The six million parts all contribute to the is, to the being of the Boeing 747, and they all contribute to the ability of a Boeing 747 to quite literally move hundreds of people at hundreds of miles an hour across a continent in, frankly, relative comf comfort. Um, I mean, compared to a, a wagon train or something like that. If I were to try to take that trip in the family car, um, it'd be it, we could carry less people in less comfort. And if I were to try to do it on my bicycle, even less. And here's the point. It's the relative. It's the relatively fewer parts um, of my car or my bicycle that, in a certain sense, have something to do with the relative impotence of my car or bicycle compared to a Boeing seven forty seven. And so we get this idea that producing big outcomes, the bigger the machine and the more multi-parted the machine, the more spectacular the result. And so um, you'll find this argument. Like in um, in Richard Dawkins' critique of theism, uh, he he can't understand why Christians ever historically said God was simple. He thinks that, and in fact, he thinks that most modern Christians argue, and they do argue. I think they're wrong that for God to be the biggest producer ever, because what did God produce? You know, the world and all things in it. Um, boy, how how complex, you know, you hear this language, how complex God must be, you know, and we think about this in terms of computers as well. The more complex the computer, the more effective it is to compute. You get what I'm after? And so if you, if you, if you strip the parts out of the computer, the power to compute gets stripped out as well. And so the thinking, we, we move on the, this kind of physics mechanistic um, way of thinking. And in this mechanistic way of thinking, a non-multi-parted God is a weakling, and a super-duper multi-parted God is the most powerful thing. I don't know. Does that, does that kind of way of reasoning uh, make sense? Um, and so as you strip away parts, you strip away power to act. And I think that this is, in the popular imagination, one of the reasons that people object to the doctrine of simplicity. It just sounds like you're hollowing out God's power. Because don't the parts add the power to act? And the answer is, in a, a multi-parted machine, they do. They do. Um, the pro I'll just get to this though. The problem is um, once you get, as it were, to the bottom, so to speak, of the um, uh, you know of if you strip away a machine, if you get down to the last two parts, 
um, you know, so to speak, the, the essential bits. It's true. You've stripped away power and then you can strip away the very being of the thing by by disin- by disintegrating its essential parts. Um, and then it doesn't even have the power to produce anything because it doesn't even exist anymore. Um, you've removed existence from essence, so to speak. Um, I think, though, once you get down, the reason that, but but watch this, take Boeing 747. A Boeing 747 is also dependent for its being in 6 million different ways. Do you get what I'm after? In other words, yes, it's the most, it's it's more powerful, but it's also more dependent. Does, does that make sense? In other words, it's it's a powerful entity, no doubt. And it can produce great outcomes. Hundreds of people moved across a continent in, in, a, in a matter of hours um, with, you know, with ice and soda to drink and, uh, you know, and, and an air condition and a reading lamp even. Um, and and all, all of that. But that Boeing 747, such as it is, depends upon 6 million things that are not a Boeing 747 to be a Boeing 747. Now, if you come to God, what, you, what you're saying, if you say that God is the, is the most complex being of all, what you're actually saying is that God is the most dependent entity in reality. Does that, does that, make, does that rationale make sense? And that won't do, that will do, that's, that's fine if you're talking about um, a machine, a, a, a machine, like a material machine. But that's not fine if you're talking about the first cause of being. Because the first cause of being cannot turn out to be the most dependent being in the world or in reality. Um, and I think that's what we have to get away from. What we're really saying when we say God is not composed of parts is that God is fullness of being so that we're not actually, when we, when we say that God is not composed of parts, we're not actually stripping away being. We're actually stripping away the finite ways of being, and we're getting right down to being itself subsisting. Or the medievals would say, and you'll find a lot of Protestants will speak the same way, that God is ipsum esse subsistence or pure act. He is he is the boundless act of being. He's not a he's not a thing that has power. He is the power by which he's powerful. He's not a thing that has wisdom. He is wisdom itself, and he's all of these things in an undifferentiated perfection of being, namely godness as such. Um, if, I, if I could put it like that, I think that's the most popular objection um, that doesn't strip away like that kind of thing. I think the other objections are a little bit more um, biblical objections would be things like, well, doesn't God seem to change his mind? And wouldn't a change of mind mean that there has to be a distinction between God and his state of mind? Because how could like in Exodus 32, 14, when Moses says that God changed his mind or relented is the literal language. Doesn't, doesn't there have to be a distinction in God between God and his states of mind so that states of mind become accidents in God? And you'll find arguments like that coming from open theists. Um, and some conservative evangelicals will make arguments like that as well. It just seems like if God can change his mind, then there has to be a distinction between God and the state of mind God happens to have at some moment. And therefore, God has to be composed of, uh, the inference would be God would have to be composed of state of mind plus his essence for instance. Um, and so people will say, well, God's particular state of mind is not essential to God. Having a mind is essential to God, but having a mind disposed in this or that way is not essential to God. And so there are these non-essential actualities in God, um, namely the mind that sometimes changes. Um, and therefore, you can see how that begins to undo simplicity because it actually reduces the is of God to something more fundamental than God. Essence as opposed to like an accidental state of knowledge. So I think that's another that's another sort of set of concerns that is, even if not always articulated that way, it's brought to the table by modern by a sort of modern way of interpreting those passages. Mm. I'll leave well, the, I'll leave those as my two. 
Um, we were going to ask you what is lost if someone denies divine simplicity, but I think you made that somewhat clear in your last uh, question that we asked you. If God is not simple, he is the most dependent being in reality. So uh, you can speak more to that if you want to, but uh, we... Well, let me make one comment about it with regard to piety, and not to cut you off, Austin, pick up right where you were, but with regard to piety in that respect, what's lost? Um, the Christian entrusts himself to God and to his word, and God promises and he swears by himself uh, that he's going to bring us to an eternal inheritance in his son. And, and he stakes that oath, I'm thinking of Hebrews 6, on himself. But if God were dependent on what is not God just to be God, and then he staked oaths upon himself, then we would have, we ourselves would have to depend on something more fundamental than God just in order to depend upon God. Like I have to depend on the four tires of my car in order to depend upon my car. I don't just depend upon my car. I depend upon that on, on which my car depends. And I think with regard to piety, if we don't have a simple God, it begins to complicate uh, in a, in a, in a dark and sinister way. It begins to complicate the whole question of who do you trust um, or what or in what do you ultimately trust? Simplicity is a great argument for ultimately and unqualifiedly trusting God. But if he's a if he's a composite God, then you have to trust him qualifiedly. So I think with regard to piety, with the regard to that total and utter unreserved abandonment to God as God in his promises and what he and what he does in and through the gospel doing all of that based upon him his own self i think that i think that piety is deeply complicated and threatened if we lose divine simplicity now don't get me wrong i don't think that means that you're think that you're sitting there every time you pray or or cry out to god in dependence about all the ways in which thomas aquinas denied he was composed of parts and thereby but nevertheless thinking through those ways and thinking wow you're not dependent in this way and you're not dependent in the other way and just using those as occasions to again cast yourself upon him unreservedly, that can be beneficial. But if you lose the doctrine and you have a composite God, um, it will complicate piety. So on the other side of that coin, then what are some of, some more, you just mentioned one, but what are some more of the practical ramifications or blessings of this doctrine? Yeah, I think I think in terms of the practical ramifications, I want to be careful and not say formally that this is a practical doctrine. In other words, um, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's a practical doctrine. Um, in other words, um, uh, keep in step with the Spirit. That's a practical doctrine. Um, triunity historically has been considered a, the earlier reform would have called it contemplative or speculative. I know that that language is out of fashion now. Um, I, I don't mind it if we, if we understand it correctly, meaning um, this is a doctrine to be enjoyed this is not a doctrine that tells you what to do. This is a this is a doctrine that, in a certain sense, is an end in itself. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ um, is a means to an end. Um, knowing that God is simple is an end in itself. It it's it in itself commands your adoration. It in itself is not a, a how to doctrine. It's a it's a it's a knowing and enjoying who is kind of doctrine. Nevertheless, if you if by practical implications we mean um, how does this affect my heart? How does this affect my walk with the Lord? It doesn't affect it in the sense of practical theology telling you how to, but it does have practical implications, if I can put it like that. Uh, and I think one of those implications is that this is a doctrine that will, if we if we understand it and if we study it in more depth, it's going to actually, it should, it should help to increase our faith. 
Does this make sense? And to increase our trust in the Lord that in the face of in the face of a world that hates us and a world that despises us uh, and in in a world in which the church bears a cross as sojourners um, in this world and veil of tears, we need to entrust ourselves to God and to his promises. Uh, and that's what's going to nur- that's the well that's going to nourish our souls. I mean, together with union with Christ and the the blessings of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our heart. Um, undou- I don't mean to discard any of those, but throw throw uh, simplicity into the mix as well, because simplicity is actually um, an argument for why you can entrust yourself unreservedly to God and to His Word. Um, and I think that that's part. And I put it a little differently. Sometimes when, when I teach this um, in the classroom, I sometimes say. Um, the reason that you can trust that God will not fall apart on you is because he has no parts into which to fall. <laughs> can I say it like that? I mean, I know it's a little cute, but and I, I don't, I don't like cute theology, but I'll indulge myself for just a moment. Like God won't fall apart on you because not because he happens to be very integrated. This is an interesting art, interesting aspect of this. Um, God does not live an integrated life. That's how that's that's a good a good Christian life is a well integrated life. But God is not an integrated being in that there's a bit of this and a bit of that, and somehow this bit and that bit are held together by whatever unifies it. You know, in other words, um, the reason you can trust God is actually not because God is integral, but because He is more unified uh, and indomitable and unchangeable than integrated realities. It's because God is infinite unbounded, unpartitioned fullness of being. Um, I think that, that, again, I don't suggest we con- comprehend this. I don't comprehend that. I cannot, I cannot comprehend simplicity. Maybe I should go on the record and say that because some people listen to a discussion like this and they're like, oh, you think you totally comprehend God. In fact, what I'm actually arguing is, oh, let's make this another practical implication. Simplicity is in fact, the truth of simplicity is a reminder that God is incomprehensible. It, It reminds us of the creator creature distinction. It reminds us that God exists in a manner of being wholly unlike our manner of being in which there's no dependency whatsoever. Um, and it also is a basis for his incomprehensibility. Um, I can conceive a two and three and six million parted thing. I mean, if I had enough time and leisure and were really smart and, you know, had a, had a benefactor who could, you know, in other words, all of that, it's possible for me to do. I can't comprehend a multi-parted thing. In other words, there's not a this and a that to associate in my mind. Like I can say, I can say something like Austin is human. And that's a multi-parted statement syncing up with a multi-parted reality. Austin Austin is the subject, Austin is the subject, and then humanity is the nature that he has. And I can say Jimmy is human, and I can say the humanity that Jimmy has and the humanity that Austin has are generically and um, even specifically identical, and yet Jimmy isn't Austin and Austin isn't Jimmy. So there's got to be some difference between being Austin and being human. Otherwise, we'd all be Austin. And I can do things like that. And I realize that at, at some level, in other words, I can think through that at a metaphysical level and come to all sorts of insights about nature by contemplating parts. But when you come to simplicity, you can believe simplicity, you can know simplicity, but you cannot comprehend simplicity. Does that make sense? In other words, I can know why the first cause of all being must be simple. And I can tell you in multiple ways why varieties of composition will undermine him as the first cause of being, the one who is the reason for himself. I can, I can tell you why that's very problematic and why you must believe simplicity, but I can't actually help you imagine simplicity. If, if the distinction makes sense, you can believe it and you can know why it must be true, but you can't 
you can't sort of have a one-to-one concept that corresponds to it. I've never, even the statement, God is simple. I love this. God is simple is a multi-parted statement. You have a subject, you have a predicate, and you have a, a little is, you know, linking them together. Um, God is simple is a, compl- is a composite way of thinking about non-compositeness. Okay. I think this is a practical implication of simplicity. It reminds us in a very stark way of the profound incomprehensibility of the divine being, not the unknowability, not the unbelievability, but the incomprehensibility of the one that we know. Anyway, so those are for a couple points uh, on, on implications of the doctrine. The doc- I think as I may, you just I may have lost your audio. Go ahead. Say that again, Jimmy. I lost your audio. As you just mentioned, um, the doctrine of divine simplicity reminds us how God is incomprehensible, and, and yet it is a doctrine that, as you've stated earlier, is biblical, philosophically sound. How or what advice would you give a pastor like myself in teaching the church that I pastor this doctrine? Well, my first bit of advice is um, don't launch straight into Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, you know, Prima Pars question three, which is, it's delicious, but like it's, it's meaty and it has to be built up toward. Don't get me wrong. I actually, I have taught this doctrine numerous times in sort of adults, I mean, to to Christian undergraduates. Um, Now, they were required to be there and they were in academia. Um, but I've also taught it in church Sunday school on numerous occasions. And I think I think the best way to come into this is to really start with, as a pastor, to really start with the fundamental rationale. Because I will, I think we should, first of all, also not hide the fact that this is strange. I don't mean intellectually repugnant. I just mean, you know, it would be strange if God were not strange. If God turned out to just be a bigger version of you that would be strange. There, there's a certain, there should be a certain amount of um, strangeness, again, not intellectual nonsense, but strangeness when we talk about the divine being. But that being said, I think you should take your point of departure from that fundamental Christian conviction that everyone in the pew already has, which is God does not depend on what is not himself for any aspect of his existence, essence, or operation, or put it, put it a little more simply, God doesn't depend on what is not God to be God. I think if you can take that as your point of departure, you will already, that's not a gimmick, so to speak. That's not to say, well, tell them something they already believe and then kind of launch off into this exotic, strange, medieval doctrine. Um, that I mean, do all of that, but it's not gimmicky. Do, do you get what I'm after? In other words, you're not, you're not manipulating them. You're really getting down to that hard core of what this doctrine is designed to protect. And it really is designed to protect that irreducible absoluteness of God as the one who creates and sustains all things, the one behind which there's nothing, there's no cause of being behind him that we look to. I think if you take that as your point of departure and then sort of start working into ways in which composition indicates dependency, and by the way, you're going to have to illustrate this. Not If you just give them the abstract, um, eyes will glaze over in seconds. Um if you can illustrate the abstract concretely um, in the varieties of composition, for instance, I think it will begin to allow your people, uh, your, your lay people, to start to kind of grasp uh, the way in which this doctrine has been articulated. But I would say this, um, it is a doctrine that I think can be understood in an orthodox way by the average Christian, 
um, without having uh, an undergraduate degree in medieval philosophy or something like that. If you start with that basic Christian conviction, I have found it. I mean, what I think a pastor once recommended this to me before I ever taught it in Sunday school. And I've always done this when I teach it for the first time. Um, I bring things, I bring physical objects. I don't do this in the pulpit, but I will do this in a Sunday school. I don't bring, I'll bring physical objects composed of parts and then just use it quite literally as an object lesson to indicate how parts relate to whole or holes relate to parts in a dependency type relation. So I, I usually borrow uh, like, a Lego, you know, a Lego minifigure from my kids or something like this to go and illustrate this doctrine, just so people can have have a, a way to kind of begin to think their way through the implications of this. Um, that said, there are certain dimensions of this doctrine. Well, think about it like this: all that sophisticated, you know, models of composition denied of God. That is really just an elaborate scheme. Uh, and I want to, I say scheme, not in a bad way, in a good way. That's all really just an elaborate scheme designed to protect that core Christian conviction. God does not depend on what is not God in order to be God. And then all, and if I can say, and, and simplicity is just the details. Simplicity is just the details. Um, I think if you can get your foothold there with your people, you'll have the, you'll, you'll begin, you'll let them read. If you, you, if you're a confessional church, when they read God is without parts, that will actually mean something to them then, something important. Um, and, and I think it can be grasped by the by the average Christian, really. Hmm. Well, in addition to your books on this subject, what material would you recommend on divine simplicity? Uh, I like the discussion in Herman Bovink's Reform Dogmatics, uh, Volume 2. He discusses it in a couple different places there. Um, it's it's brief because he's just doing a survey there of God and creation broadly, um, but it's very helpful. Um, if you want, um, if you want a, um, a simpler introduction, I think I have, I think I have a YouTube talk or two. Some of them are complicated, other ones less complicated. You, uh, listeners could decide for themselves, uh, which is which, um, I would also though say, if you want to look at this in older writers, um, if, especially for pastors, maybe interested lay people, if you have Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elenctic Theology, um, he was a 17th century uh, reform teacher in Geneva. His discussion of divine simplicity is, is brief and sophisticated and highly orthodox. Um, I like it. I also like the discussion in uh, the first volume of Wilhelmus Abrockel's uh, work, The Christian's Reasonable Service. Uh, and the discussion there is only two or three pages, but it's really a nice introduction, um, a nice introduction to this doctrine. If you want to take the, if you want to sort of take the plunge though, um, Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologiae, um, first part or part one, question three is where he deals with this. And you'll, that really is that, that art, that one question with its eight articles is the source of so much Protestant explanation of this doctrine later on in the 17th century. And I think for those that really want to own this doctrine as part of their own sort of confessional reformed heritage, you, you really should go to the source that the people you're reading were reading. Uh, and that is, that is def and that is Thomas's question, uh, question three in the first part. And you can find that text free um, online. So I would, anyway, those, I would recommend those as ways into the doctrine. So we've been talking about the doctrine of divine simplicity and, and been given a helpful overview of it. Um, 
for the final question, do you have any encouragements that you would like to give our audience relating to this doctrine that we've been discussing or anything else? I would just say, don't be, don't be discouraged by the seeming difficulty of the doctrine uh, on the front end. I, I know it's, it's a, it's a little, someone asked me one time, why did I did this as my, this was my doctoral work was on divine simplicity. And someone said, why'd you choose divine simplicity? You know, and I jokingly said, well, it, it sounded simple. Um, but as soon as you get into the doctrine, you realize it, you know, the, the irony in divine simplicity is it's not a simply understood doctrine, though I think the core conviction of it is, and I would just give this encouragement. Um, if you've begun with this doctrine, don't despair. I, I remember being, I remember going through the bewilderment phase. I, I've never gotten out of the wonder phase. Uh, the wonder phase is permanent, um, to, to be in awe. Um, and to and to be struck with the mystery of the incomprehensibility. First, I would encourage people who are studying this: don't plan to grow out of that. If you grow out of that, you've probably you've probably embraced some heretical version of this doctrine. Um, on the flip side, though, don't be discouraged by the difficulty of this doctrine. Um, I think that bit by bit, so to speak, you can come to sort of grasp the different arguments. Um, and I would also argue this will be my other encouragement on the way out is this will be in it. This will be a, a real fortification to your faith. I think as a result of this, if you do this prayerfully, um, what you'll find is a God upon whom you can cast yourself unreservedly. Um, and, and your strength will be in fact strengthened or your faith will be strengthened as a result of that study. So persist in that. Don't be discouraged by the apparent difficulty on the front end. Mm. Well, we have been discussing the doctrine of divine simplicity with James Dolezal. And uh, brother, we want to thank you once again for taking your time to record with us. Austin and Jimmy, it's been a pleasure. And thanks again for having me. We had previously talked with uh, this brother about the doctrine of the Trinity. We will link to that as well in the show notes. And we hope that this conversation has been profitable for you. We wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.